Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The voice of a writer can be heard in words and sometimes seen in the writer's face. It is unusual, however, to find both in a book in which the creator of the book is the author and the photographer. Linda Coolidge is just that person. She is a professor of African American literature at San Diego State University and an accomplished photographer. She is the author of a recent book entitled African American Writers, Portraits and Visions, in which she reveals the visage of 59 African American writers along with a thumbnail biography and summation of each writer's vision. I spoke recently with Linda Coolish and asked her to begin by telling us about her love for photography and how it weaves into the written work of the writers she portrays. I think what I'm about as a photographer is my falling in love with language and and it's language that's written um the the improvisation of of the poets certainly i think emerges in my sense of spontaneity and joy which is one of the things when i'm there's this photograph of harriet mullen and she is bursting into laughter and in fact i had a series of 3 um and one of them she looks so sad and then there's this utterly uh, almost raucous delightful uh laughter and then the one that i used in the book which is which is full of joy um and that that range that happened in a minute and a half that was really an extraordinary experience just to see um but but what i respond to um is all of those intricate interesting improvisational amazing travels that that these writers go to and so i'm i'm listening with my eyes and something happens some moment happens and it's often fed by having read their work and thought about what it is in each of those writers that i want to see that i want to discover that i want to be open to listening to tell us about that moment something happens that you see with your eyes in their eyes in your shutter clicks how do you recognize that it's about to be there, or is it so spontaneous that it happens and you push the shutter button? It isn't planned. I, I heard a, uh, a talk by the poet Robert Pinsky, and he said something about how it is that you know that a poem is finished. And it's very much um, uh, arising out of the same kind of thinking as, as Yusuf Komenyaka, who's in the book, uh, about how he looks at at work and it's it's he uses rhythm as a kind of of sanding. He says the rhythm of my breath and work was the metronome dividing the words I committed to paper as I used rasps and sandpaper to scrape wood back to its earliest symmetry and perfection. Um, uh, Pinsky talked about how if you if you were a carpenter and you ran your hand over a piece of wood, you would know it was finished and that hearing a poem read out loud it it's a, a similar experience you, you you just you just know and i think it's the same with 
being a photographer, that there is a moment when you squeeze that shutter and you know that's the one. When you're taking your pictures of of your subjects, uh, of your writers, that you also teach about, and I want to ask you about that in a few minutes, um, how much time do you spend? What is the setup like? What kinds of tools do you use? It's certainly not the same for each person, but ideally it's maybe a couple of hours. And the first tool is that I spend a few days before I photograph somebody doing pretty much what I guess you probably do before you interview somebody, and that's reading and thinking about them. So I, people like to talk about their own work, and it's also a way for me to feel a little less scared because, you know, I am often photographing people who are extraordinary. I mean, John Edgar Wideman is maybe the most brilliant man I've ever met in my entire life. And I think about that. I had five minutes to photograph him, and I was awed by his work and felt that I still didn't know enough. Um, and I wanted to be able to talk to him about his work, and I wanted to be able to listen. And there's this moment. You look at this photograph of him, and I'm not actually answering the question so directly, but it's it's sort of an interesting side tangent. Um, there's this moment when he looks a bit wary. He looks a bit like... And why should I let you in, white girl? Um, And I think, you know, it was a perfectly legitimate response. I was um, awed and a little scared and and hadn't prepared as well as I would have liked to. But because there was this moment, and there he was, and I really did not try and gussy it up and change him and, 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 and pretend that something was there that wasn't, there was a respect that happened, and I ended up with a photograph of him in an absolute gorgeous bear hug with his son, Daniel, who is also a writer, which is uh, usually the slide I, I use to end my slideshows. It was a moment of extravagant joy that followed a moment that was quite reserved. And, and how I prepare is to allow myself to be emotionally open to whatever is happening with that writer. And if it's wariness to me, if it's um, mistrust, if it's uh, curiosity, if it's uh, distance, I try really hard not to edit that out. I want to know exactly where somebody is and pay attention to that and respect that. How do you prepare yourself to be open to someone you're about to photograph? Um, I think the first is simply to read as much as I can about that writer, to read what they've written, sometimes to read criticism about them, sometimes to write criticism about them, so that I have this this foundation, this quiet inside me so that I know, even if I'm not speaking to them, even if I'm photographing them and they're on stage and I've simply asked for their permission and I, and I haven't had a personal conversation with them, there's a way in which I have a conversation that's maybe silent, but it's still happening for me. And that sense of knowing how to listen um, at a certain point, how I'm hearing and what I'm seeing become simultaneous. So, Linda, how do you know how to listen? What do you listen for? Well, it's funny. I mean, I'm a, quite a chatterbox in my, in my non-photographic life, but I get behind that viewfinder, and I simply want to hear. There's a way in which it's, I mean, someone once said to me that I photograph, and this was at a time when I was mostly photographing uh, women writers, and I had taken this photograph of Elsa Gidlow, who was 76, and I was about 25 at the time. 
And a friend said, you know, you photograph every woman as if you were that woman's lover. And I laughed, and I thought, it's actually true that when I get behind the viewfinder, I want to see someone's beauty in that deepest sense, and however that beauty manifests itself. And it's not in kind of literal, glamorous uh, terms at all, but it's the kind of the steadiness and the clarity of maybe Forrest Hamer or the wisdom and the reserve of of John Edgar Wideman or the laughter and the complexity of, of Harriet Mullen, who's an experimental poet. It's simply it's simply listening. And I don't know how that happens. I just know that that sort of chattering that often happens inside my head stops when I'm behind the viewfinder. It, I mean, I, in a funny sort of a way, I think about how a therapist is not supposed to intrude on uh, a client's conversation. Um, I certainly don't feel like I'm anybody's therapist, but I feel like I feel like my job is about really paying attention in the deepest way. There's a photograph in the book of Audre Lorde, and she is in a very animated conversation with uh, Adrian Rich, a poet. Uh, and even though Rich is not visible in the photograph, when you look at that photograph of Audrey, you have the most intense, focused listening. Uh, Linda, I want to find out from you how you behave so that you can let people let themselves be exposed and relaxed. Uh, but first, I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Linda Coolish, a scholar of African-American literature and also an associate professor of English and comparative literature at San Diego State University. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Linda has a uh, recent book called African-American Writers, Portraits and Visions. Linda, you've referred to yourself as a white girl. You're not a black person photographing black people. And you're asking the subjects in your book to bear their face, uh, to bear their souls through their eyes to you. How do you do that? I don't know if I can answer that because it's not exactly a deliberate process. There is. It was a kind of complicated thing for me because I was on, I was traveling for about a year of photographing writers, and I wrote letters to each of the writers asking if I could come and photograph them, and introduce myself as a person who was a professor of African American literature. And I, I had a wonderful letter from Wilfred Samuels, who is president of the African American Literature and Culture Society, introducing my work. And I couldn't think of a polite way of saying, and P.S. I'm white. Uh, and I knew that it was relevant in some way, and yet I was coming to them as a professor of African-American literature, as a scholar of black literature, and as someone who has been photographing black writers for 30 years. And that, in fact, was supposedly, or it certainly should have been, what mattered. And yet I knew when I knocked on someone's door that they were going to be surprised that I was white. And I had maybe 15 seconds to stop being a white person and simply be a person. And in this culture, in, in this country, people are so racialized that it's an amazing experience to sort of try very hard to shed your skin. And you can only try very hard to shed your skin by not trying, by simply being, by just simply breathing, by simply allowing yourself to be a person to a person. And I don't know how you talk about that. I mean, it's something that's that's intuitive and happens only after a long time. I mean, and I still get scared that I'll 
say something wrong or I mean I remember being on a radio show uh with Dan Irwin in on KPBS and it was the day after Toni Morrison got the Nobel Prize for Literature and I never generally speaking I never speak of the term their women and there was a question and I ended up saying black men and I meant to say and the women who love them and ended up saying and their women which I think of as borderline racist thing to say and I I froze I couldn't believe that came out of my mouth but all of us learn things inadvertently that just emerge and people make mistakes with one another and it seems more critical if you happen to be white and your life work is about African-American literature and culture. And it is. And I don't know exactly how that happened, except that I was writing a dissertation on American feminist poetry. And when I started writing the work on Native American and African-American women writers, I realized that I had done add and stir in all the other chapters of my dissertation, that I had mostly white writers with a few writers of color added in. And that that didn't make intellectual or spiritual sense to me. And I called up my dissertation director and I said, hold the fort, I'm going to rewrite my whole dissertation. And it was a very long dissertation. It was an 831-page dissertation. It was a big deal to to do that kind of rewriting. But it, I didn't set out to be a scholar in African-American literature. I started out to be a scholar of feminist poetry. But and you are a scholar of African-American it, it literature. It's absolutely true. I mean, what happened was it was the best stuff I had ever read in my life. And so I mostly was then doing uh, black women's poetry. Then I started reading a lot of the black women's fiction. And then I started reading some of the men thinking that it would help me understand, uh, because there was a lot of intertextuality, it would help me understand some of the black women's writing. And then I fell in love with a lot of male writers and thought, I can't do this anymore. I really want to write about slave narrative. I really want to write about the African-American literary tradition. I just thought all of it moved me incredibly, and it was what I wanted to do. And I didn't set out to doing it, but y- you you have to follow your heart as a human being, as a scholar, or you are really lost. I mean, teaching is too damn hard a life work to not love what you do. Well, Linda, tell us then how black literature is unique, how it is separate. Well, I think if I was going to tell you what drew me to black literature, I, I would say that it's it's spiritually compelling, that it's vibrant, it's visionary, its language is muscular and playful, it's profoundly concerned with spiritual life and moral vision, and it's seditious as hell. Toni Morrison um, was asked once uh, about what makes a book black, and she said that it was its language, and I'm going to quote here, uh, she said it's it's unpoliced, seditious, confrontational, manipulative, disruptive, masked, and unmasking language. Um, I think about uh, Harriet Mullins, who's uh, a poet, and she she has this completely irreverent reference to canonized black texts, up from slobbery instead of up from slavery, and the souls of black feet. She's she's a hoot. It's outrageous. She she invents words like squadroon, which is conjuring up both the term, the racial term quadroom, and the police interrogation room, the squadroom. She does stuff with language. Or I think about John Edgar Wideman's describing Rodney King's uh, being beaten as, he said it reminded him of the great white whale, 
of him being harpooned and tethered. There is an acuteness. There is a way of seeing that doesn't miss anything that I find much more often in African-American literature than in any other literature. Why do you think it's there in African-American literature more so than in any other literature? It's there for me. I think every literature has astonishing moments in it and that it simply requires one's own attentiveness to see what's there. I'm not making a special claim for black literature that it's better than any other literature. For me, it's more stunning than any other literature. For me, I have found writers who amaze, bewilder, delight, terrify, uh, and move me. But I am sure that any other person who really deeply loves literature and who read widely enough would eventually wind up finding some literature that was compelling in that way for them. I don't, I don't pretend to say that, that there is this hierarchy and that this literature is better than any other literature, but I will say that for me it is. For me, I find what it is I want to know. I mean, I think as a, as a younger reader, I ended up coming to black literature because it was the place more than anywhere else that I felt one could discover what it was like to, I guess I would say, overcome bitterness to find some way to transform your anger into love. Was there bitterness or anger in your life at that time? I think there was. I, I came Tell from us. a fairly dysfunctional family, and I had an awful lot of anger, and I didn't know how to find some way to celebrate the possibility of tenderness. And that's the place I found it. And so... I mean, Alice Walker talks about coming to literature to save her own life. I guess I would really say, honestly, I came to black literature in exactly that way. It, it was the literature that taught me how to be a human being. Linda, you and I have talked a lot about the different characters uh, who you write about and who you've photographed in your book. And the one that uh, you've mentioned the most is Toni Morrison. Can you share some of your thoughts about Toni Morrison with us? Sure. I mean, the thing that was probably the hardest for me of all the literary biographies was trying to, to characterize Toni Morrison's visionary work in 500 words. It was astounding. I ended up saying something brief about each of the novels, so maybe I'll just share that with you. Can you read it for us? Sure. The narrator of Toni Morrison's Jazz, Riley observes of her chosen endeavor, risky, I'd say, trying to figure out anybody's state of mind, but worth the trouble if you're like me, curious, inventive, and well-informed. It is this contrary, unreliable, revising, complex narrative mind that delivers the goods in all of Morrison's highly nuanced, irreducible, eloquent, demanding, fructifying fiction. The bluest eye explores how destructive ideas about physical beauty shatter the community, delineating the territory of the struggle for the black writer to refute the imperious white text with its inherent untruthfulness for black lives. Sula interrogates the complexities of maternal love, World War I's aftermath, and the symbiotic friendship between Nell Wright and Sula Peace, the self-chosen pariah who insists my lonely is mine. Song of Solomon, a novel about milkman's search not for gold, but for self, for story, is a parable about ancestors naming in flight, in which giving voice is not so important as what you give voice to. 
Assisting in disemboweling a bobcat, Milkman is told by the old black hunters not to go after what is merely the sound and the fury, but to go after what is essential. Don't get the lungs now. Get the heart. Tar Baby, an allegory about colonialism and authenticity, an unphotographable beauty, and a model whose job it is to be photographed, a man who has not forgotten his ancient properties and a woman in flight from them, is set in the Caribbean. Valerian Street, willfully guilty of innocence, paves his empire with the labor of blacks whom he dismisses with a flutter of his fingers just as he creates a pink and white candy confection from the sludge left over from darker candies. And in a novel suffused with pain, Morrison offers in the Pulitzer Prize-winning Beloved a meditation on loving, suggesting the contours and possibilities and beauty of love, densely textured, visual, and cinematic in its onrush of simultaneous images and memories, biblical, mythological, Native American, archetypal, those evoking middle passage and the magical supernatural. This fictional slave narrative is structured as some aspects of memory are structured, disjointed, circular, insistent, urgent, in moments in which Setha is unable to disremember, the primal images of the novel emerge. Unwilled and unbidden, images of schoolteacher's ink, the theft of Setha's breast milk, Paldi's neck jewelry, iron bits, the underground cages of Alfred Georgia, the ironic beauty of Sweet Home, Hallie's buttered face, and the crisping of Sixo flood Setha. Each character in the profoundly innovative jazz, a polyrhythmic, percussive masterpiece about the dirty get-on-down music that made you do unwise, disorderly things, enacts an improvisational solo performance, an accompaniment to the narrator and the city's melody. As Morrison remarked in a 1983 interview, jazz always keeps you on the edge. There is no final chord, and it agitates you. I want my books to be like that. Her most recent novel, Paradise, A Story of Black Migration, is situated in all-black Ruby, Oklahoma, a community intended to insulate its inhabitants from out there where every cluster of white men looked like a posse. Linda, black music has a tremendous effect uh, on your work and on what you've written and on American society. Yeah, it was astounding to me as I as I read to do the literary bios that more than half of the writers wrote very explicitly both in their fiction and poetry and in the biographical statements that were uh, attributed to them about about how music had affected them. I, I'm thinking of Al Young's amazing musical memoir Mingus Mingus, Quincy Troops. Uh, autobiography of Miles Davis, Albert Murray, Clarence Major, Rita Dove, Yusuf Komenyaka, maybe maybe 40, 40 of the 60 writers have, have written explicitly about the influence of music in their, in their work. Al Young um, has a poem uh, in which physical space becomes subject to the same rules as improvisational composition. He says this is um, a poem called Distances. The distance anywhere from birth to death, from sit to stand, from heat to holy snow, invents itself, unravels as you go. And in his, in his first novel, Snakes, it's the story of a young man's quest to become a jazz musician. And uh, let's see, Yusuf Komenyaka has, has written a gorgeous book called Blue Notes, which is a, a collection of essays about his work as a poet, and most of it has to do with music. And he talks about how uh, the drum was a, was a threat in slavery, because it articulated cultural unity and communication. And he says, but we, of course, began to clap our hands and stomp our feet to sustain the connection to who we are, 
Music is serious business in the African-American community, he says, because it's so intricately interwoven with our identity. Most of us don't have to strain to see those graceful, swaying shadows of contemporary America in cahoots with the night in Congo Square, committing an act of sabotage merely by dancing to keep the forbidden gods alive. I mean, it's amazing stuff what, what these writers have written about, just not as fiction or not as poetry, but just uh, as, as an essay. I think I, let me just offer one more little tidbit because it's it's so good and this is this is Rita Dove. She says, "My youth was filled with musical language: the acid drawl of an uncle spinning out a joke, the call and response of the A.M.E. Zion Church, the jump rope ditties and Bessie Smith on the phonograph, the clear ecstasy of Bach, and the sweet sadness of Billie Holiday." Buoyed by this living cushion of sound, I began to write. I could do nothing else but describe the world I knew, a world where there was both jazz and opera gray suits and blue jeans, iambic pentameter in the dozens, Shakespeare and Baldwin. Language was power. It was also joy. Linda Coolish, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, I think I think Yusuf Komenyaka's Dien Ka Dao, which is a collection of poems about Vietnam, uh, and also Nian Vernacular, also by, by Komenyaka, He's written poems that are so astonishingly vulnerable. There's a poem called Nude Tango and another Venus's Flytraps, which suggest, intimate a kind of sexual violence that's really extraordinary for a man to be willing to write about, for anyone to be willing to write about. Or Afa Michael Weaver, who who wrote a poem called Beginnings, in which he he describes this modest house of his childhood, and it becomes the portals to a kind of spiritual transcendence. I want to read a line from that, or a couple lines. Inside it had no end. The stairs led to God's tongue. The basement was the warm door to the labyrinth of the earth. We lived on the rising chest of a star. But he walks into his home, and there is the introduction of violence, and the young boy draws his first blood in a, in a fist fight. And the poem ends with the line, the world became many houses, all of them, under siege. Linda Coolish, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. It's been a very great pleasure for me. Thanks so much. Linda Coolish is the author and photographer of African American Writers, Portraits and Visions. The books she recommends are Dien Kadao and Neon Vernacular by Yousef Kamunyaka. She also recommends the poetry of Afa Michael Weaver. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
1-800-273-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>